0: Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Yes, unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors, including the brand new course, Fundamentals of Photography. Check it out at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. You'll get a free month for a limited time of all the great coursework at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats for your free month. Check it out. Here's our show.
1: Delay in the locker room uh, talking to some of the youngsters who are being allowed in there. A man who hasn't played a soccer game in uh, almost a year's time, played the full 90 minutes. And acquitted himself tremendously, made a lot of friends in the North American Soccer League. Now let's go down to the field and Jack Whittaker. Thank you very much, Frank. I think perhaps symbolic of the state of professional soccer in the United States these past few years has been this stadium in which today's game was played. Downey Stadium on Randall's Island in New York lies like a derelict under the arches of the Triborough Bridge. It was built in the Depression of the 1930s, and it has worn down, paint-peeling, and very weak like a A sandlot, please if you will, in a city of glass and steel. To lift soccer out of stadiums action? like this, to lift it out of the darkness into the sunlight of a well-seated p- uh, pitch Plan, the plane, is the task that has now fallen on the shoulders of Pelé. And it certainly will be, on be the one of the most interesting play sports play stories play to chronicle play to play. in the next few months. To see if this man at the age of 34, some of his artistry dimmed by age and comeback, to see if the magic of his reputation and his skills can give prominence to soccer in the only country in the world that has treated it with apathy. Now Pele will have some help in this. The North American Soccer League has been working very quietly and diligently these past few years. We veterans who remember the 67 and 68 years with the unpronounceable names and the empty ballparks and the increasing flood of red ink, know that there have been some changes. Most important is the fact that more youngsters in the United States play soccer today. And it is from them in years to come that the stars will come like Kyle Rowe Jr. and more importantly, more soccer fans. In the meantime, the task is Pele's, and I think he's up to it. Because this afternoon for an hour and a half, this wasn't a worn-out stadium with the paint peeling. It was a gay, sunlit place, and we cheered his artistry. For Ben Wright, Frank Lieber, this is Jack Whitaker from Downing Stadium, Randall's Island, New York.
2: Welcome
0: to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast Devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, let's get going, everybody, shall we? Hi there, my name is Tim Hanlon. As announced, and indeed, you have found the only podcast uh, that we know of in the United States, or hell, the world for that matter, uh, that is focused on obsessively uh, around uh, teams and leagues. Uh, Those things around uh, professional sports uh, that are no longer with us. We call it Good Seats Still available. That's uh, the curious podcast that we'd like to uh, say is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. I uh, welcome you back to the proceedings. I am uh, all geared up. I'm back from holiday in London uh, where it was a scorching hot uh, change in prime ministership and uh, all kinds of exciting things over there. And, and I'm, I'm very excited about uh, this episode this week because uh, we're uh, looking at uh, the history of the United States uh, and the sport of soccer. Uh, which we've done in bits and pieces uh, in, in episodes past. But we're going to use this episode more of as a survey. And uh, with our new friend, Tom Scholes, uh, who has a book coming out, depending on where you live, is already out uh, in the U.K. and in Europe and uh, is uh, soon to come out here in the United States in October. It's called Stateside Soccer, the Definitive History of Soccer in the United States. And uh, having been in the, in the U.K. for a good portion of uh, the last week or so as we record this episode, Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated to, to hear, uh, people outside the United States and their perceptions of the sport of soccer, uh, in the U S and, um, frankly, the uh, inaccuracies and, or the the sheer, uh, misunderstandings, I think of, of just how deep and rich, uh, the interest in the sport of soccer has been over the decades and centuries here in the U S. Uh, and frankly, it's relative strength and opportunities vis-a-vis that of, uh, the professional leagues and, and just the, the, the state of the sport uh, around the world. Of course, you know, American exceptionalism, uh, you know, does not do it any favors, as uh, many things uh, in life uh, these days seem to uh, kind of evidence themselves. But certainly in the sport of soccer, right, soccer is not something that is uh, inherently, quote unquote, North American, uh, endemic to the U.S. sports uh, psyche, because it's a sport that was not created here, uh, was not sort of perfected here. We have uh, 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 never sort of been at the sort of top echelon of of its play, like other sports have, uh, it's kind of uh, uh, taken over our uh, our fascination over the decades and centuries as a, as a nation. Um, but as our guest Tom Scholes and I will uh, regale in the conversation to come uh, in moments hence, the story of of soccer uh, in this country is very deep and very rich. And hopefully, you will enjoy this conversation that uh, Tom and I had. Uh, that kind of sort of scratches the surface a bit in sort of a uh, I guess a survey-like manner. That uh, kind of gets into some of the things that we've delved into in bits and pieces prior, uh, but kind of maybe sort of scene sets sort of a, an overarching arc, if you will, of history about the sport of soccer professionally and otherwise uh, in this country. And the book uh, that you uh, need to get, uh, whether you're in the UK or in Europe, where you can get it now, uh, as the as of the airing of this uh, of this little show. Uh, or in the United States you can pre-order it for its uh, official release come October it's called Stateside Soccer the definitive history of soccer in the United States and it is a uh it is a tremendous survey it's uh, deep and rich and uh, eminently readable uh, that kind of traces literally from the beginnings in uh sort of the the post civil war era of the sport of soccer it's its ethnic uh, uh roots and uh, nourishment uh, in the decades that followed and, and of course it's uh, foibles and travails across uh, with the 1950 World Cup and the 1960s, when uh, the pro game was kind of started with great fanfare, the sort of nadir in the late 60s when it was near death's door, uh, the the meteoric rise and the uh, phenomenal success of the North American Soccer League during the 70s and early 80s, its collapse and obviously rebirth again in what is now Major League Soccer. And, uh, you know, a, c- a couple of cups of coffee in in World Cups and 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 a lot of things yet to to come in in the history of the sport uh, of soccer in the United States. That clip that you heard at the beginning uh, is absolutely one of those seminal moments over the uh, somewhat checkered and frankly often misunderstood history of soccer in the United States. Uh, And that was a clip from a CBS television broadcast from, uh, let's see, it was June uh, 1975, June the 15th, as a matter of fact, uh, 1975. And uh, that was the, the dulcet tones of Jack Whitaker at the end of the game, uh, the exhibition game that was hastily arranged for Pele's debut as a New York Cosmo uh, against uh, uh, the Dallas Tornado, uh, a game that ended in a 2-2 tie at Randall's Island, Downing Stadium uh, in particular on Randall's Island in the, in New York City, just uh, across the uh, the river there from Manhattan, uh, featuring, of course, the Dallas Tornado uh, led by Kyle Roach Jr., our previous guest. Uh, on this show, uh, go search that one up. You'll learn a lot about how that game came into being. But as uh, as uh, Jack Whitaker sort of put out there, uh, you got a sense of really where the sense of the pro game and uh, frankly the game of, of soccer generally was uh, during the mid-1970s and just how important Pele's arrival was uh, at that time. And is absolutely a seminal moment amongst, frankly, many seminal moments, not all of them uh, uh, ceremoniously recognized or remembered as Pele's uh, debut. Uh, about, uh, you know, the fits and starts of this sport uh, in this country. And uh, that's what we're going to get into uh, in our conversation with Tom Scholes in just a couple of moments. And uh, I appreciate your listening, and I think you will find it enjoyable, as uh, as once again, I did uh, as well. Uh, before we get there, I want to say thank you to our uh, great sponsor and our great friend, Dean Mitchell. He, the proprietor of SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Uh, and of course, there at sportshistorycollectibles.com, dot com, you're going to find a trove of uh, memorabilia across all kinds of different uh, items, uh, whether they be programs or media guides or buttons and pins and pendants uh, and other just fun recollections and, and pieces uh, and memories of uh, many leagues and teams uh, no longer with us uh, previously incarnated. Uh, and it's kind of a, I would call it a highly curated eBay, really, for the discriminating uh, collector uh, who's really interested in all kinds of sports history. Uh, and in particular, as we like to focus on, you know, things uh, no longer with us that uh, kind of tickled our fancy back in the day. And and God forbid you find some really cool stuff in the realm of soccer or baseball or football or basketball or, hell, even Olympic sports, uh, some amateur stuff. Uh, and there's new stuff each and every week sort of uh, being Piled on there for you to take a look at, uh, greatly photographed and uh, and well worth and some tremendous pricing as well. And that, again, is SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And, of course, we have a promo code for you to use to get some uh, discountage, shall we say. And uh, that promo code is Good Seats. Yes, that's the promo code at SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. Promo code is Good Seats. And you will get 15% off of all of your purchases each and every time you go. And that's at sports history collectibles.com and again thank you to dean mitchell and his friends down san diego way uh, for their sponsorship of this show and we appreciate him and them doing so of course and we appreciate you giving them a try uh, as well and giving us a few shekels of love when you do so all right so let's uh, let's move on shall we let's sit back and relax and enjoy uh, our conversation with tom skulls he the author Uh, of uh, the upcoming uh, in the United States and now uh, uh, available in the UK and Europe, Stateside Soccer, as we get into the history of the sport of soccer in the United States. Please, as always,
2: enjoy. I think it was, as, as as a person, as a human being, and I've been like this my whole life, I always look for the next thing, the thing that nobody else looks at. So we're blessed here to have the Premier League. It's the biggest league in the world. Now, whether people want to say it's the best, that's not for me to answer because I don't believe there's a definitive answer to that question. But in a lot of people's minds, it's the best and it's certainly the biggest football soccer league in the world. But there's no fun in that because everyone's looking at it. If everybody's eyes are on one thing, that leaves a whole wide world of other things that people are... They've kind of got a side eye to it, they've got one eye on, just in case something happens. And then I kind of, it was basically a university where we'd stay up and we'd play video games. I mean, I was the model student, as you can clearly tell, but we'd play like FIFA or the computer simulator game Football Manager. And obviously because the MLS games were on quite late... You'd be flicking around the sports channels and you'd be like, oh, there's got to be something on it this time. And then you flick something over and it's like, okay, I've heard of, uh, the Port- for example, the Portland Timbers versus uh, the New York Red Bulls. I'll give it a watch. And then you watch another one and then you watch another one. You become familiar with the teams. You come, from, you come to be familiar with the characters of the players, the management, even to an extent the referees. And then when you go into social media and look at how it's presented over in America and Canada, you get familiar with the you get familiar with the commentators and the, you know the local media, and you kind of it's like a rabbit hole in in a way where people say oh I got I went down this YouTube rabbit hole and I ended up watching this and then ended up on that, but it was a little bit more coherent than a you know, than a YouTube rabbit hole I guess it was a case of it just took me I I kind of the way that I looked at it was it's it's easily accessible but it isn't treated as such it's still treated as like this mystical thing from another from another world that nobody really understands but then you've got people that are looking at like the Chinese League and they don't understand everything that's being said or being written and you know I'm fortunate that when I was at school I learnt German and a tad bit of French so I could understand that but there's a perfectly good league over in the United States that has the same language as us the timing isn't too bad and there's actually a couple of players that we, we're familiar with, and a lot of them are quite good. So when I got involved in like kind of becoming a fan of it and just getting involved in what's happening and watching matches on a regular basis, I, I tend to go backwards. I look at the history to see what makes it. So about two years ago, I got into basketball. Now, it's one thing to just watch the NBA and take it for what it is, but you've got to understand the context of it and the historical aspects of some instances. And I did that with United States soccer. And I was pleasantly surprised by what I found. It was vivid. It was colourful. It was what people want it to be, but they never expect it to be because they always treat it as some new um, league, this new thing that people have found. Whereas in reality is quite the opposite. And the, the starting point of me kind of taking on this project was I was in a Barnes and Noble in New York and I was looking for a soccer book, a US soccer book, and there wasn't one. So I came home, I finished off my dissertation, the documentary on concussions in amateur football, amateur soccer rather. And I kind of like, oh, well, I've done this. I'm gonna crack on, I, I, I'm gonna put some time into it. And then it, it just rolled on it rolled on. And by the time I realized it, I was in the middle of the project, so it was kind of like a, a late night intrigue of watching the league, followed by understanding historical aspects of it, and then snowballing backwards into realizing, hang on a minute, it's not quite fully niche, but no one's really tackled it head on just yet. So I thought it was worth a try, and lo and behold, someone else did as well and took it on. So I,
0: I think that's ironic uh, that you know, Major League Soccer is almost sort of the uh, was the uh, uh, I guess the. Uh, allure or the uh, the uh, the the tip of the iceberg, for you, because you sort of uh, saw live games coming from the United States, and and sort of it it sort of uh, piqued your curiosity a bit that uh, there might have been more to all of this. Which, you know, if you if you listen to soccer purists here in the United States, right, Major League Soccer is sort of the the best of times and the worst of times, um, where. You know, uh, Lord knows, as you've certainly discovered, we'll get into, right, the uh, the, the torturous history of the professional game uh, in this country, right, uh, landing into what is now Major League Soccer going on almost 20 years now and and rolling out new franchises seemingly by the minute. Um, yet, you know, the, the purists out there, those who are, you know, first-generation pro fans, say, like myself from back to the old NASL or even those with a, a longer – uh, optic into uh, you know the the history of this game here, you know, kind of uh, deride uh, the quality of play of MLS relative to that of obviously the Premier League and and many of the other major leagues around the world. So it, the, the dichotomy is very striking. One that you know through through British eyes, you're sort of seeing the American soccer scene, uh, and uh, and ironically in the United States, you know, plenty of people still uh seemingly finding this game somewhat niche and or new despite all of the history behind it that we're going to get into
2: exactly and that in itself is what struck me as interesting where you go back and you look at like the the the, the origins of of the sport in america and then you look at like we're going to go through this but just a, a, a rundown of it like the american soccer league post first world war the world cups that the united states have been participating in for they were in the third world cup and then you look at like nations like, for instance, England, we refused to travel to the first World Cup because we thought we were too big for it. Whereas the United States finished in the semi-final places. Now, I know there was a little bit of you know, the semi-finals back then, a difference what the semi-finals are now, but nevertheless, it still says that on the honour sheet, you go through history, the United States were World Cup semi finalists You look at, And especially the, the connection between English and United States soccer, there's, there's, there's more than meets the eye there. And I think the problem... That I encountered was people, they see uh, Major League Soccer and they think that's it. They think, okay, Pele was there for a couple of years, then nothing happened, then the World Cup happened. And then it's just been Major League Soccer ever since, with a bit of David Beckham thrown in. And I thought, I'll hold my hands up. I was guilty of that at one point because I, I just didn't know any better. I just looked and just went, oh, okay, they're cool, yeah, well done, they're trying it. But when you look back at it and then you look and go, okay, there's actually more to it than meets the eye. It's something that is interesting and it's, if you the way that I see it, if you watch Major League Soccer and you expect to see Premier League standard or Champions League standard uh, play, you're in the wrong place. If you want to watch Premier League standard, Champions League standard, you go to the Premier League and the Champions League. But if you want to enjoy um, kind of like a entertainment more of a free-flowing kind of the fans seem to enjoy themselves more there seems to be more of a camaraderie a community sense in some places and you know speaking to fans and looking at how fans act and groups of supporters it's almost like what we think we are here in terms of we're a community we are you know never say die the team is this first and we support everyone that supports the team I find that seems to be the case more now in America than it does here, especially with some of the atmospheres at some of the stadiums. So I just wanted to delve into it and kind of not not force people into it, but just kind of shine a light and guide guide the way to kind of go, look, stuff has happened before. It isn't just a, a cherry-picked few things. And I'd learnt across the way, and I know that if I can learn something out of it, there's a lot more people that can learn it as well. So, how do you, What's your entree then? How do you how do you approach
0: this uh, obviously deep and rich topic? Right, is the NASL your entree? Is it the post nineteen sixty six World Cup uh, in England and and the dollar signs in uh, various promoters' eyes in the United States to to set up a league that ultimately became the NASL? Do you go back to you know even earlier than that with the ethnic? Where do you start in the process? of putting this narrative together?
2: I started, well, uh, per, on a personal level, what I started to research first was the NASL because I knew that it was there, I understood it, but I didn't underst- I didn't have the full context and full grasp of how it was formed, what came about it. A league doesn't just pop up overnight and a team like the Cosmos doesn't just happen overnight with Pelé and Chinalia and, you know, plays like that, but there's a, there's a process to it. So I had to understand that. But in terms of... The story arc of the, the book—it starts back. I can't remember the exact years, but like the 1800s, um, when there, there was a chap who—I'm not going to spoil anything because if I spoil everything now, no one's going to go and read it. But buy the book, everybody! Come on, let's be honest. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to give everything away, you know. But it's there was like a mix-up with names. There was a, it involved. Uh, a gentleman who wanted, who was part of a group that wanted to abolish slavery, they tried to um, start, kind of take over a slave farm, it, it backfired, and there was a grandfather who, had, who, he was the one that started it, and there was a grandson who they had the same name, so the family sent the grandson up to like the northwest area, sorry, northeast area, and um, kind of, You know, we'll send you away just to avoid any confusion between you and your grandfather because of the name and everything. He went off to like university and to school and whatnot, and they derived from, you know, a a a sport that one way went American football and another way went soccer, and I felt that was the perfect place for it because you read any book about any other league about any other nation's history and it doesn't start in nine in in the twentieth century; it starts before that, and I felt that if if this story which i felt was interesting and intriguing enough was really the catalyst really the first place that it stemmed from it was only right to do it it was only right to do so most people are familiar with the NASL. And I, you know, I devote a, a large chunk of it to the NAS, NASL for you know obvious reasons because there's more to talk about. There was more uh, media available. There was more like newspaper clippings, television coverage. So there was like interviews in Sports Illustrated and magazine covers that you could delve into in comparison to what came before that. But I felt it was doing it a disservice if you didn't go to the very beginning because you can't start a story halfway through and you can't start a story just at the most popular bit and at the apex of it because there needs to be a gradual build-up and there needs to be an understanding of, you know, they, they it, it, it wouldn't have made sense if everyone just watched the 1966 World Cup and boom, they wanted to start a league. There had to be something prior to it. There had to be something else to kind of introduce the people, introduce the readers and introduce people that want to learn about it. That like, Look, the US has a history it did a lot prior to both world wars both the the 1966 world cup prior to the nasl so it starts in like the the slave trade era of the united states and then moves on to like post first world war pre-great depression era of the asl and kind of delving into that and just saying look the, there were some genuine super teams that were kicking around, like Bethlehem Steel and you know, the two that get mentioned are the, are the Steel and Four River Marksmen, and even looking at them their stories are interesting and you can't just ignore that because that is an integral part of history it'd be like doing a book on English soccer and saying, oh yeah Huddersfield, they, were, they did you know, they won multiple league championships but because it happened in the 30s, we'll keep that bit quiet. No one needs to know about that. Where it is, But it, it does a disservice to it because it's an important part of the arc. It's an important part of what happened. And I felt it was the same with this. It was, yes, I could have started post-66 World Cup because that's when everything exploded on a, on a mainstream level, but it wasn't the true starting point. And if you're going to tell the true story of everything, you have to start from the very beginning. And you have to give context to everything because if you don't give context to it, Ultimately, everything that follows means nothing.
0: Well, I suspect that as you sort of got into the the earliest part of the story, right, you did come across probably very regularly, I guess, the, the genesis of the interest of the sport here in the United States, like, frankly, a lot of other things as this crazy country has evolved over the decades and centuries, right, is this, quote-unquote, ethnic kind of uh, uh, origination, that is, people coming from other nations— especially in the sort of uh, you know the late 1800s early 1900s with uh, you know open eyes about sort of the land of opportunity but also bringing with them uh, especially from the uh, from the realm of Europe right their uh, their pastimes and their hobbies and interests uh, at least to keep them occupied as they pursued their new lives in in the United States right and and, and soccer or football obviously was certainly part of that and and, and it seems to me that, when you look at the American Soccer League or even the predecessors of that or, or frankly, even the regional and largely what we would call ethnic leagues uh, in the early uh, uh, parts of, uh, of the 1900s were very much centered around ethnic enclaves and new imports, shall we say, to to the United States who have brought their uh, their round balls and uh, and love of their uh, their sport with them to kind of continue uh, in their new uh, pursuits of uh, of
2: opportunity. Precisely, and it plays again. That's another part that if I'd have left it out, it would have been doing a disservice to it. Because yes, they had the game anyway, but it was it was enhanced. It was it grew because of the you know the, uh, the people that came over. You had Italians, Irish, British, German, French, Portuguese, Spanish. They were all coming to different parts and bringing their own different style to it. And we look at history, uh, to use an example, two examples, if you look at the Barcelona badge and the AC Milan badge, they both got English flags on there. And for years and years when I was growing up, I never understood why. And then I found out why. It's because there was a English, English people went over and kind of showed them the sport. And I felt that's an important part of their history. And if that happened in America with different nationalities and different areas and different leagues that were formed because of these people that had emigrated over, that that's an important part of the history. And that kind of gives an example of what can happen. I mean, I suppose now might be the best the best time, depending on what side you're on, to kind of delve into the immigration side of everything and understand, look, this is an important part of the culture that happened during this time. And everything grew because of that. And it, it is important to stress that I don't. I personally, I don't think it would be where it is now without that influx of it, because there were so many different people that came over. There were so many different styles that arrived with them, and different ways of playing the same game. And I think, you know, when you have when you introduce that and you introduce the cultural dynamic of a Portuguese style versus an Italian style, depending on where you are, it just it gives it a different dynamic, it gives it a different element, and I felt that was so interesting, and then it fed into you know future US men's national team squads at early World Cups, so, you know, you look at how many Englishmen were in the American team, and then you look at you know the star player, Billy Con, I, 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 I've struggled to fully pronounce this name properly, Calvez or Goncalves, my Portuguese language isn't... Uh, uh, up to the standard it probably should be but he as you can tell by the name was from portuguese immigration and his parents were portuguese so it was like the star players and the important players of that famous team most of them weren't american most of them were from different backgrounds they were from different areas they brought different styles with them and they had brought a different element to them and again that's why i wanted to go right to the very beginning just to understand. Look. Yes, it is a, an, an American game, to an extent. But it grew, and it changed, and it evolved so rapidly and so quickly because of the influx of people that were you know, bringing over different styles and bringing over different cultures and different backgrounds and whatnot. And it, personally, I feel it adds to it. It gives it a bit of legi- legitimacy in some way. And it sounds odd to say, but you look at any major footballing soccer nation that has achieved anything argentina is heavily linked with italy brazil uh, you know italy france germany all the all the major players There's there's a huge influx and a huge influence from people that aren't actually from those countries and when i found out that it was the same in america it would have been a disservice like i said before to leave it out and it would have been quite frankly disrespectful to not even give it a passing mention So how was the
0: organization of the game in those early years sort of uh, coming into fruition, right? I mean, obviously there was no no real, you know, uh, hint of even professionalism for for decades, right? Until maybe the 1930s when the ASL sort of kind of – and there were some fits and starts. But, I mean, how were these immigrants plying their soccer – where's shall we say i mean was it largely uh, amateur leagues that were put together in these uh, ethnic enclaves or how was the organizational sort of structure sort of because uh, it seems like it was relatively ragtag uh and confined for many decades before you know even people thought that this could be a, a thing by itself professionally
2: it was mainly if i remember off the top of my head correctly because if, if my memory doesn't, if my memory uh, occasionally leaves me during this chat, that's my way of saying to people that are listening, if I can't remember it, go and read it in the book that does come out quite soon. I think, you'll be I able think, to remember it yourself.
0: We'll give you the benefit of the doubt on that for
2: sure. <laughs> so, exactly, but it was mainly like regional based, and it was mainly you know, depending on where you're from. There'd be uh, work leagues, from what I remember. And it would be, depending on where they worked, or where they were from, it would be from that area. So there'd be a northeastern league, a midwest league, you know, it was mainly like Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania areas, the New York and the and the Massachusetts area. That really had the first influx of every look like, at what resembled a professional league, even though it was amateur because it was, for want of a better word, a kickabout, which was mainly what it what it what it was. And I think You know, yes, it wasn't professional. Yes, it wasn't to the standard of what would eventually happen and what would eventually come. But at the same time, it was still um, professional enough and still well run enough to have a number of teams, have a lot of players involved, have you know a, a, a table of sorts. And I'm sure if you go online, there are some records of you know excuse me, what would we call a, a league table of sorts, even though there was nothing to play for. They just tallied everything up. And it was a mix of you know certain areas in cities, certain areas in states or regions that would play against each other because they had no other way of playing. Otherwise, it would just be the equivalent of going to a field and just kicking the ball about for a bit. And that's no fun if there's an element to it where it's you know semi-competitive, even at an amateur level then it grows and then more people are going to see it, more people are going to enjoy it. And even though, like you said, it wasn't necessarily professional, and it was a little bit ragtag, and it it was, it really, really was, because there was no organisational skills from people involved at that time. There was no one to turn around and go, hey, why don't we actually make this a legitimate thing? That's why they kept it in such a confined space. And it wasn't until the effect of those regional leagues and the effect of those um, teams and those Players really grew; that people took interest, and people understood that there might be something to be made out of it. So, whilst it was ragtag and relatively amateur, like like you said, it still had a big impact. And I think that was all it took. That's all it needed. It didn't need a prim and polished polished excuse me league like they then eventually ended up getting. It just a starter. It's 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 like when you go to a restaurant and you get um, a bowl of or a plate of bread, that's the perfect way to introduce you to it because you don't want the whole thing at one go. You might not be ready for it. You might not be prepared for it. But if you have something little, if you have something just to get you get you prepared and get you ready for it, when it eventually comes, you'll be ready for it. You'll be able to invest a lot of time into it. And I think that's, you know, not to compare, to compare regional soccer leagues to bread, but that's the kind of, impact that i felt it had it was the starting point for the realization that hey we can take this you know fun pastime into something professional so, whilst they were ragtag and amateur and rinky dink and whatever word you want to call it, it still had a big effect and it wasn't run to the perfection and to the level that it eventually would be. But it was run to a level that it continued for some time and it was, you know, professional leagues and major leagues were stop, start, stop, start, stop, start as, as, as it was throughout history. But at that particular time, that's what it, that's amateur kind of level was exactly what was needed.
0: You're also hinting at uh, and uh, this actually uh, dovetails with uh, the growth of uh, professional American football in this country, the growth of professional basketball in this country. And, and you hinted at it, which is the uh, the tie uh, loose or 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 strong uh, with uh, with companies and factories and uh, uh, and businesses uh, that, you know, maybe employed immigrants uh, on a on a grand scale. And one way to sort of uh, keep morale up and uh, and maybe sort of uh, strengthen the bonds of, uh, of uh, productivity and and camaraderie, right, is to have the sponsorship and or the sort of uh, uh, rubric, I guess, of, of competitive play as company teams. You're mentioning Bethlehem Steel. I mean, Kearney, uh, New Jersey, right, which was sort of a, one of the early hotbeds, certainly St. Louis. You know, a lot of these uh, areas that sort of helped uh, bring the game up in the earliest of times uh, were very much traced to Uh, the work environments in which many of these immigrant players uh, you know, uh, worked by day and kind of released steam, shall we say, and and enjoyed the game that they grew up with in their homelands by night or weekend.
2: That's precisely it. And that is when, like I was saying, that the the, the amateur leagues kind of gave way to people understanding that there could be something out of this. And obviously when people are interested, the first thing they think of is, is, is there money to be made out of this? But when the business got involved is essentially when it all took off and they had the starting point with the you know the emigrant teams they had it with the regional leagues they just needed some backing so you know in in a way that to keep it stable to make it legitimate and to make it just better in a way i remember seeing stories of scottish players that left um, the Scottish leagues, the Scottish first divisions, and the professional leagues to come and play in the American Soccer League in the in the, in the in the late 20s and the 30s, because they were doubling and tripling their wages. They were employing them for their factories, employing them for their businesses. And when they w- arrived there, they went, Oh, you know, you can you can play this as well. You know, we we know what you we know what you were like back home. You can come do this as well if you if you really want to. So that's how the teams got. Better and that's how the the the, the leagues and the and, and the sport grew by people realising there was an opportunity to be had there because the early amateur leagues and the early regional uh, leagues had shown that there was an interest for it. There was shown that it was you know, it not only was it entertaining but people wanted to pay for, to see it, especially if there was talent on show. And if you're using your money that you've got from uh, your business and from your companies to import even better players. Then, in theory, the better players you bring in, the more people are going to come and watch. So, I think the starting point of the amateur leagues back in, you know, with the with the various people that had, that had uh, come over to the United States, it kind of set the set the stone. It set that it was it was the the stepping stone to what would eventually become the American Soccer League. And businesses would get involved, and businesses would look and see, you know, if our workers are happy playing this, and people are happy to come and watch them play, and they were. You know they're entertained by it maybe there's maybe there's a penny to be made out of it and that's exactly what they try to do
0: all right we'll be back in just a moment with our conversation but first uh, a quick promotional message from our friends at the great courses plus Uh, You've heard me talk about The Great Courses Plus uh, on a number of other episodes, and I cannot recommend it highly enough, especially if you haven't tried it yet. What are you waiting for? Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. You are going to get a free month for a limited time of the entire Great Courses Plus service. It is chock full of video learning, unlimited video learning at that, with the world's greatest professors and featuring uh, a ton of great courses from all kinds of different categories in history and in science and health and fitness and hobbies or food and wine, professional development, personal development, you name it. There's just a smattering, a gigantic smattering of courses at The Great Courses Plus, including one that I'm about halfway through myself, and it's called Fundamentals of Photography, and it is done in conjunction with National Geographic and taught by Professor Joel Sartori, who is a professional photographer, has done a lot of work with National Geographic and other places. And I'm telling you, you know, you you young rubber snappers out there with your cell phones thinking that you've got uh, the photography thing all, all figured out. Well, you really don't because even with the device that you've got in your hand such as that, uh, but frankly, even with more professional equipment or anything in between, uh, the ability to take better photos is something that we all can benefit from. Photography is uh, probably one of the most intimate things that we uh, can sort of attach our memories to uh, as time goes on. And and frankly, you want to get those photos right. You want to get every snapshot, every person in your life, uh, whether it's uh, on a vacation or during a memorable moment in in their days on this earth, uh, you want to get all those pictures right. And I can't think of a better course uh, than Fundamentals of Photography, just one of the literally hundreds, if not, I think maybe even in the thousands of great courses from The Great Courses Plus. And again, that's The Great Courses Plus. Dot com slash good seats. That is the place to go to get a free month of the entire service. Yeah, that's not just only Fundamentals of Photography, but all of the, the hundreds of other uh, great courses to choose from. You can uh, watch them online. You can watch them uh, via their app. You can stream them to any device. Uh, you can download them should you not be near an internet connection for use. Let's say you're on an airplane or you're driving and you want to just listen to them. Well, you can listen to them uh, in audio-only form. You don't have to stare at a screen if you don't want. Uh, And again, that's all yours to enjoy. Uh, Unlimited for a free, unadulterated month at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats. Try it now. You will absolutely love it. I virtually guarantee it. And uh, we appreciate The Great Courses Plus for their sponsorship of this little show. And uh, this little show continues right now. Here's the rest of our chat. Well, let's let's talk about that American Soccer League and and for purists out there, uh, the the American Soccer League, uh, the second version of such, which uh, is was the longest or has been the the longest was the longest lasting uh, professional league. And this is, you know, circa, what, 1934 or so. Maybe you can use that sort of as a backstop or backdrop to the, I guess, the evolution of professional, quote unquote, soccer in, in this country. Right. Because even. You know, we'll fast forward to 1960s or so in a few minutes, but, you know, for decades from the mid 30s until, uh, well, the ASL second version went on through the early part of the 1980s. But I guess I would argue until the mid 1960s, this American Soccer League was really the only true, you know, long lasting professional league. But but even that was, you know, it kind of shall we say, grew into what was professionalism. I, I, guess, I guess it's really more of a question of what, it, what was, quote-unquote, professional soccer via the ASL in those decades, because it certainly wasn't big league by any stretch, and, and we're talking about, frankly, a lot of ethnicity that still very much was rooted uh, in this league, albeit being somewhat semi-even professional.
2: I think the key to it was the longevity of it, like you said. It was low-key. It was small. It was then overtaken by another larger, um, more glamorous league in the NASL that arrived, you know, some years on. But you can't have a league go for nearly fifty odd years, and there not be something behind that. There not be a reason behind that. Um, it, it, the first American soccer league, or what was considered the first American soccer league was I think was, was a prototype to the NASL in a way where teams would have have a lot of money and they try to get the best players and the star players from overseas and make the biggest name and make the most money which is you know, what is what I focus on more so in in my book but the second soccer league that you mention on is more or less the foundation of what I think people looked at and go okay it's managed to stay this long it's relatively sustainable and this is what they're doing they took a look at the nasl and the peaks and troughs peaks and troughs that that had where it was yes it was bigger yes it's historically seen as the only professional league and whilst the america the second american soccer league was relatively professional i'm not going to go out on a limb and say it was 100 professional but it showed that even without the limelight that the NESL had, it could last, and there was something there, especially with the type of players that they were getting involved. It wasn't the best players from overseas like the NESL was doing. It didn't need it. Well, I'm sure if Pelle had arrived, it would have done wonders for it, but it didn't need it because it kept going and it kept going and it went through all of this, all of this, you know, change and watching other sports overtake it. There was a period of time where soccer was the second biggest professional sport in the United States behind baseball and then it just started to slow down and it wasn't as grand and it wasn't as you know just didn't for whatever reason take off at that particular time but the second American Soccer League kept chugging on and it kept forming league you know playing seasons rather it kept going on it kept going on and on and on and I think when when organizers looked back and went okay what do they do to keep it so long I think they looked at the players that were involved, they looked at the areas that are involved, and they obviously realised that if you have a lot of ethnic players involved, then the talent is obviously going to be very, very good, because that just, that just seems to be how it is. But also, in the particular areas, there must have been an interest for it, there must have been a strong want, and a strong desire to watch any kind of soccer. So I think... Whilst it isn't given the credit it's due, because it, ha- it, I think it was just a case of wrong place, wrong time at that particular time for the you know for the second ASL. I think it it should get the credit, more credit than it deserves, because it kind of held uh, the, the, the 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 domestic game up for so long, because it was a lot more stable than the NESL would prove to be. It was a lot more stable than the first ASL proved to be, and it's still, even to, even in there, or even by today's standard, it's still the longest serving, quote-unquote, professional league that America's ever had. So they must have done something right. So I think they just looked at that, and they kind of built around, you know, what made that work.
0: Well, it's striking to me that uh, the, those years from the 30s through the 60s, I guess, uh, of the Second version of the American Soccer League. I mean, I, I, it it feels to me like a lot of it still was its inability, or frankly, its desire even not to uh, shake uh, the ethnic label. Right? I, I, in many respects, the sport uh, was still very much that of 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 immigrants and even successor generation of immigrants, and and so the quote unquote naturally born, shall we say, American player, right, was still many many years from sort of evolving or coming coming into being but it feels to me that this American soccer League was was primarily reflective of the fact that that the majority of people interested in in playing this sport uh, were either directly or uh, somewhat immediately rooted in uh, various ethnicities that had mo- fairly recently come into this country and and I think from a professional standpoint right relative to baseball or the growth of pro- professional, American football at the time, or even any of the other sports, right? It almost feels to me that while those other sports were, I guess, organically American for lack of a better term, this sport of soccer, right, worldwide in its uh, in its scope and stature, was ironically looked upon in the United States as this quote unquote foreign thing. And I think maybe that was sort of the perceptional a hindrance, maybe, and maybe lack of any sustainability for anything beyond a relatively modest and still regionally centric uh, professional American soccer league to go anything beyond that.
2: I still think that occurs now. I even even given by today's standards, where you look at Major League Soccer and who's who is the, the best players in the league now. I, off the top of my head I can't think of if you give me you say to me who are the top 3 players of major league soccer number 1 isn't American number 2 isn't an American and number 3 isn't American so I think there's an impression that you know it's not a quote unquote american sport to play not in the same way that with american football they get taught that from a very early age in and certainly in school and in college that this is america's game I mean, we have over in in Sky Sports, we have over, you know, the the show NFL America's Game, which goes over, you know, every team that's won the Super Bowl. And it is interesting, but it it says a lot about what the perception is of that sport. NFL is America's game. Baseball is America's favourite pastime. And basketball is the only one where, you know, ethnicity doesn't matter. Background doesn't matter. And there's no stigma attached to it. There's no, you know, label put onto any player. You know, every I, I can imagine. There's a lot of people that would rather their child grow up to be a Tom Brady than a Cristiano Ronaldo, just because of the just because of what the two represent and how different they are. And I think even now that suffers from it. Soccer suffers from that look, and it suffers from that. You know, mindset of the, the pure American, the stereotypical pure American male is a is a Tom Brady. When in reality, there isn't a ter- stereotypical male. Everyone's different. Everyone has their own individual qualities, and some of them suit one sport better than the other. And I think, you know, if that if that hamper[s] it now in the world we live in, where people have a better opinion of. You know, the world in general, or at least you hope they have a better opinion in the world in general. I tried to think what it would have been like during the 60s when the NFL really took off or any time well, pre or post that, because there was, it, it just doesn't seem to be an American thing. It's a, a, a Southern American thing, a Latin American thing, a European thing, but it's not a North American thing. And I think that's one of the, th- one of the reasons why it's hampered a little bit, because everybody wants their child, well, I say everybody, but there would be a large amount of people that would want their child to grow up to be um, Tom Brady, Mike Trout, players like that, that they are, quote, hardworking They're tough, they're strong, they're resilient, and they're talented. Whereas it's not only about that. Some people fit a different sport. Some backgrounds love a different sport more than the others. If you have a Mexican family, chances are their child is going to want to grow up to be a soccer player. And I think that perception sometimes does hamper it. Even by today's standards. So, like I said, if it if it does it, if it does that now, when we have a better access to what the what the world is like, I dread to think what it would have been like when it was mainly ethnic players and in ethnic regions. I dread to think what the reaction would have been like and why it was treated why it was. Well, I think in
0: in, in sports, right, in particular, the the assimilation uh, process of of uh, of immigrants to this country, right, where you know I. You could sort of juxtapose that with sort of the desire to, uh, you know, it's the the great melting pot, right? Or at least it's historically been set up as such, right? So, you know, as people cross the boat or, or you know emigrate to this country, and and you know they want to retain some of their their heritage and and their histories and their, um, you know, their interests and all that kind of stuff, but yet they're also strongly desirous of of trying to quote unquote fit in and become uniquely American, right? And and it almost, in some respects, feels to me like the sport of soccer uh, almost was held back by that, right? Because, you know, you're trying to assimilate into the quote-unquote American way of life. There is no real uh, avenue to keep going, if you will, at least at that point, uh, to be a professional in the realm of, of soccer, right? Certainly other sports, you know, and in some respects maybe it was almost uh, uh, inhibiting for for decades to sort of keep it sort of on a – as this sort of ethnically centric and only kind of sport. Look, I grew up as a child of the 70s. And, you know, even then, pro, uh, uh, sorry, amateur soccer uh, leagues and, uh, and programs were still relatively hard to find. I mean, I grew up in the New York, New Jersey, metropolitan area, but, and certainly, you know, that was close enough to places like the New York and the Kearney, New Jersey areas and those kinds of places, right? But, you know, in many swaths of this country at that time, you know, when the NASL was really starting to, to, to come about, you know, you would be more likely to find American football programs or baseball programs or, frankly, just about any other sport. And it was relatively hard to find youth soccer programs of any, any substance uh, until later in the decade. So, you know, even if there were these generations of second generation or, you know, Americans, you know, who wanted or intrigued by this sport, there really wasn't a lot of foundational grassroots, uh, let alone a pro league of, of any substance to kind of go towards. So it almost kind of, I think, nipped uh, any potential interest in the bud for decades because there was nothing to to move on to or, or to aspire to
2: in the sport. I, mean, I know you're the one that's like asking the questions, but when you were talking like that, it just prompted me to think in such a, like a historical and vivid area like you grew up in, where there is, you know, you go to New York and New Jersey, or particularly New York, certainly in the city, and there's there's every type of person, there's every ethnicity, there's every background, that why do you think it was so difficult to find, like, you know, clubs or uh, like youth clubs or what, you know, schools and soccer schools in that area? Because if you said, oh, Idaho doesn't have one, I would have gone, okay. That kind of you know that makes a little bit of sense, but in a in a in an area where it's so you know diverse, why do you think it was so hard to find places to play?
0: I mean, yeah, you know, I grew up in the suburbs, right? And and as a, a typical sort of white American suburban you know punk kid, right? I mean, it's it's you know you grow up with sort of the four major sports in your mind and, and the all American kind of mindset of what what sports uh, tend to be and and. You know, things like soccer were, you know, not not a whole lot of uh, uh, ethnic exposure or multiculturalism and, and that kind of stuff that you would find in the more urban sort of more areas, right? And I think, you know, and again, my perspective is is completely jaded by the fact that, you know, I grew up in a time where the North American Soccer League was flourishing. I lived 20 minutes away from Giant Stadium, which is was the longtime home of the New York Cosmos, which you know, in retrospect, was Chelsea before they were the modern version of Chelsea, right? They were the America's and the world's, frankly, first super team. And only in retrospect do you realize, you know, players like Pelé and Beckenbauer and Carlos Alberto and Giorgio, I mean, it's the names just on and on and on. I mean, what an amazing, but that to me was my hook. And it it was, you know, there's a different sort of set of phenomenon there, but that was Okay, what is this thing? Who are these players? Why is all that why are all the buzz around them? You know, I've never heard of these people. There's a soccer program in my town. Maybe I can, you know play that and emulate. There at least was something there to go to on weekends to pay tickets and watch. There was an emulation. I wouldn't say that I would aspire to be a professional soccer player, but it felt like there was a a system, a a garden of of activity around the sport versus this, you know, maybe you could play this thing and you can learn this sort of uh, unique and uh, sport and television certainly came into it. I I, I don't know. I, I, When I became hooked in the 70s, I immediately, somewhat like yourself, wanted to go a little bit further back and sort of say, OK, from where all this come from and, and what did I miss both before I was born and during my early years when I was not conscious um, of what that was? And I, I keep I circle back to and maybe this is a good uh, segue here too. The mid-1960s, because it, it it seems to me like that is the the time, and there are a couple of different reasons for it, where professional sports entrepreneurs kind of circled around this soccer thing as maybe worthy of a more uh, focused and uh, energized set of activities to truly give this a shot towards major league professional sports status when there wasn't anything, right? Maybe a, a what I think is a perception that this, two, you know, two, maybe three generations of American immigrants, you know, are now more, uh, shall we say, uh, harmonized with uh, or, or uh, integrated, shall we say, into the North American landscape where there are more solid opportunities and routes for something much more seriously professional and and it seems like there was a number of people baseball owners football owners et cetera, who kind of saw soccer maybe as this untapped latent market opportunity in the 60s and i i'm i'm curious to hear your perceptions of 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 that based on how you you know uh, saw this uh, history evolving i mean it seems to me like the 60s were pretty crucial to to moving to the
2: next level here i think the 60s was the was the decade where everybody realised that sports could be could make money and it's not just soccer. I think everybody they they realise that, okay, a lot of people really like this. A lot of people really want to watch this. Let's see if we can make a, a you know, a pretty penny out of it. And you look at like, the invention, I say the invention, but the, the formation of you know, when the when the NFL really took off and it had its characters, it had its stars, the NBA Had its characters. It had its stars. Major League Baseball had it. You know that was that had the historical aspect to it as well, and that was that they were making money off of that as well for 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 many years before that. But it was really, you know, with with television growing and different media appearing and people from all over kind of you know really getting involved in sports. And it's like you said earlier, they wanted to they wanted to have their own culture but also simultaneously fit in and I think the natural progression when you hear about stuff like that is obviously with you know I feel like the 60s of the year or the decade in which the sport grew here as well where we went from you know this side thing that people enjoyed on the weekends to people actually looking and going you know what this could be a life this could be a career And I think it also transferred over into the United States at that time as well, because like you said, it just happened to explode at the right time. And as much as people want to lay credit to the players and everybody who came over, really, as much as football purists, excuse me, as much as soccer purists want to uh, admit it, if it wasn't for the business owners and if it wasn't for the financial backers who kind of out of their own personal greed, and not say greed, but want to make a lot of money, they might not have came over, they might, they might not have started the league, they might not have been able to sign the players they have, but that also stemmed from a lot of people kind of getting interested in, 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 in the same time and being intrigued by it. And they realised that they tried to, to capitalise on it, and they tried to capitalise it in the most grandest way that I think the world had ever seen. And I don't think that's an exaggeration when you consider what it was like in other places across the world. Yes, it may not be as historical as, you know, you might not have a league that's got a Tottenham Hotspur, a Manchester United, a Liverpool, a Chelsea, an Arsenal. But they try to usurp history and create their own with the biggest players in the world with the most amount of money. And when you do that, no matter where you go, it will create a buzz. And we're seeing something similar now in China. Obviously not on the same scale, but people are conscious of it. People are aware of it. They are aware of Chinese teams because certain players have gone over there. And I can only imagine that when that happened, you know, with the NASL in the 60s, when people were more conscious of the sport, they were more conscious of the players. It's one thing to, you know, hear of Pelé. When he, played, when he played for Brazil. It's one thing to hear of George Best. It's one thing to hear of all these other star players. But when they come to your, your country, when they come playing for your team, it makes it so much different. And I remember reading about how uh, the, the people watched a documentary on the 1966 World Cup, and that is what is considered the catalyst for a lot of people getting into the sport and really the catalyst for people... Uh, business owners really getting dealt like getting into it and delving deep into it, and I think there's no there's no coincidence that with television taking off in it, it, with it, it, with how it was and people being aware of you say Bobby Moore Pele players like that. There's no coincidence that when people are aware of of, of stars, then it takes off into a different light. And to take an example from from a sport now, it's what Major League Baseball fans are crying out for. There is no longer a King Griffey Jr., a, a, a Barry Bonds, a, a Mark Maguire, where people can look and go, you are a superstar. You know, Mike Trout is probably the best player of this generation, but he's not considered I wouldn't say he's considered a superstar by the general sporting public because he looks like a clean-cut, average Joe kind of guy. But then you look at Aaron Judge, and he is. He looks like a video game character. He looks like a cartoon character. And then people see him play, and he does all these magnificent, magnificent things, and people are familiar with him. It's the same with soccer in that time as well. What sets some people apart? Varies. It can be um, how they shoot, what they do on the ball, where they play, how they speak. And when people become conscious of it, there's an interest in it. And obviously, you know, on one hand, it's down to the fans to be interested in it, it's down to the fans to express the interest in it, but it's also down to the business owners and the financial backers that recognise this. And rather than kind of, you know, let's let's keep the American Soccer League, because that's the pure form of it, where they went, no, let's take it to another level, let's take it to, to, a, to the television, to the radios, let's put it on magazine covers, billboards, let's make an extravagant of it. And in some ways, and I consider this, you know, this is my opinion on it, the NASL was too was too far ahead of its time. If that happened in the '90s or in the early 2000s, maybe even the 80s, I think it would have been a much. It would have lasted a lot longer, and it would have had a bigger impact on the majority of America. Just because, you know, we look at what the impact of the NBA had when they had just Magic and Larry Bird. There were two characters that people could recognise, and they could understand what each player did differently. They weren't similar, but they were in a way. And if you can imagine that level of coverage on pe- on that generation's Pele, Johan Cruyff, Beckenbauer, Usabio, then it it would have exploded more than it did.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's to me it's very interesting because it seems like the '60s were rife with. You're kind of hinting at it before, but uh, importation on a grander scale, and that was sort of the way to light the fuse, right? So, you know, this thing called the International Soccer League, which was around during the early 1960s, literally was an international tournament during the summer, not unlike today's inter um, ICC uh, championship that, uh, that goes on now, which is sort of glorified uh, uh, exhibitions uh, during the summer, but it's, it's kind of this, you know, let's bring and import uh, the, the, some of the best teams in the world and have them play at places like Yankee stadium or the polo grounds in New York, and we'll create a little bit of a competition around that. and, uh, I guess the thinking of Bill Cox, the originator of that, was, hey, you know, the ethnic uh, crowds out there will appreciate and probably pay good money to see some of these best uh, players and best teams in the world. And perhaps, you know, fr- we add in we add in a dash of sort of American spectacle to it, meaning making it an event at a limited time only kind of thing. Uh, and then the 1966 World Cup with, with England winning and it being, I think, the first time uh broadcast was, I think it was tape delayed or somewhat live or close to live uh, in the United States, was kind of the real first, I guess, national television exposure of this supposedly foreign sport. I, I think you sort of marry all that up. And then, you know, I, I think a lot of, uh, you know, the original uh, uh, progenitors of the two leagues that ultimately became the NASL sort of said, hey, you know, we've got something on our hands here. If we can mix in some of the best players and or teams from the world, and, you know, make sort of a a, a grander spectacle of it, we may actually be on to something here that will uh, maybe augment our more, shall we say, purely North American exploits in pro football and pro baseball. Uh, you know, it, it, and that seems like, I guess in retrospect, like, you know, a pretty good formula to to get something going and put some backing behind it. But boy, it, you know, circa 1969, it was basically on death's doorstep, this, you know, pent up uh, energy and interest in, in bringing professional soccer to this country. Because, you know, by the end of the decade, it was, you know, you were barely at five teams in this uh, you know, severely injured North American Soccer League. Um, and yeah, you know, I think that was a, a gloomy time for people who might have thought pro soccer's time had come
2: for this country. Yeah. I mean, you look at it, when you when you put it like that, yeah, it was kind of with five teams in the in the American soccer league it's like you you would look at that and think well why are people not going to it but then when you look at it it's like we were saying before when you marry up the the interest of the sensationalism of it mixed with the best players in the world or the you know the best teams in the world then people go and watch it and that's how you hook people and that's i think that's where what, what the American Soccer League didn't do, I mean, it couldn't because there was no way that people were going to invest into it. But that's what the NASL recognised. I think they capitalised on it where they, they kind of, I did not think they stumbled on it, but I don't think they expected it to be as big as it was, if that makes sense. Where they, they, they had their plan where they wanted to bring some big names over to kind of establish itself at, at the American sporting table. But they didn't expect it to be how it, you know, as culturally significant as it as it ended up being. So, on one hand, there, it was on death door because there was there was no interest in the pure version of the game. That being said, it's like if you put characters involved and recognizable names who are also very good, then it will then people people will come. And I think that was the difference between the two where. Uh, from a purist point of view, the American Soccer League was the historical aspect of it. And it was, you know, what it derived from the history that we spoke about earlier and that I wanted to get back in, I wanted to look deep into. But at that, at that point in time, people didn't want history. People didn't want what happened before. People wanted the biggest names. They wanted like a Pele to come over. And he did. They wanted a Beckenbauer to come over. And he did. It just took a little longer than people expected it to, because it had to settle itself. It couldn't do it overnight, because nothing works overnight. But I think there was an interest, there was a a simmering interest in the sport. There just wasn't a big enough interest in the ASL, in the second ASL. But I don't think that's got anything to do with, well, maybe I'm wrong, but the way that I read into it, was it wasn't the sports fault it was just the way that it was just circumstances how if if it, if it was at the if it was a different time with different backers and different people heading the heading the heading the league and heading the project then maybe we don't have a major league soccer maybe we don't have an nasl maybe there is just still the american soccer league Maybe things are done differently, but I think there was an interest for the for the sport. There was an interest in wanting to watch it and wanted to see it. But maybe maybe the ASL was wasn't a you know finger quotes in the air for this one. Maybe it wasn't American enough to really draw in the interest.
0: Well, and and I, that kind of maybe leads to our sort of our, maybe our our concluding thoughts here is on. The, you know, it's American exceptionalism, right? I mean, especially in pro sports, right, where, you know, U.S. audiences want the best, right? And, and, and all most of the major sports uh, that are, um, you know, uh, significantly followed and, and invested in in this country, right, are either, you know, originated here in, in the United States or are sports that we are, you know, extremely competitive in and or supreme in playing, and when it comes to a sport or or sports that aren't, right, they they sort of get relegated to sort of niche status, right? So, you know, rugby or cricket or even, you know, in soccer, right? And and I think that's the real issue right now, say, with Major League Soccer, right? Right, Most, you know, especially as as communications have gotten better in worldwide, uh, uh, you know, television and, and media and social media and all that, you know, there's – the American audience recognizes that Major League Soccer is not – you know, in the top pantheon of, of leagues around the world, right? And, and given all the the importation of, of Premier League games and La Liga and Liga and, you know, Syria and the Bundesliga, I mean, we get all kinds of, uh, uh, all the greatest leagues are base, basically available on just about any screen we want, right? And as is Major League Soccer, right? And there's, you know, there's still no comparison yet. MLS, for all its faults, right, is still doing the work, I think, of all the things that you're hinting at, sort of a little bit of the ASL, right? It's it's the – I want to say the ethnic player, but the the organically North American player, giving giving him the opportunity to play in a professional league, something to aspire to uh, in the minors or in the college ranks, uh, actually make a living at playing professional soccer, maybe the, the U.S. national team success, et cetera. But also recognizing that it's part of the world and the world's game, and you know, how do you develop the North American player? How do you how do you increase the opportunities to give uh, you know players with talent uh, the opportunity to get some minutes and and improve their game? But yet, it's really hard to kind of make that investment. And make no mistake, MLS has been an investment for twenty years. It's it's not profitable, you know, by any stretch. Although there are pockets of of success, you know, the reality is that it is still in many American sports fans' minds an inferior product to that of of other professional leagues around the world. And I think the reality is, and you tell me because you see it sort of from the outside, I, I'm, I'm more the, you know, the cynical American, but I, you know, while I try to root as much as I can for the success of MLS, it's very hard to to defend against uh, those claims of it being not as you know, it's single entity. It's not uh, purely competitive from a team by team basis. Uh, you know there are uh, a lot of restrictions around uh, player movements, and uh, you know are you know arguably the best players in the world that do come here are not unlike the NASL near the ends of their careers or maybe at the beginnings of their careers, right? Not in the heyday of them. And I know I think it's a very difficult world for MLS to navigate where. You're trying to convince American sports fans that this is a worthwhile endeavor and uh, top-notch pro soccer, yet allay the fears and/or change the perceptions of those, shall we call them Euro snobs, around you know the, the 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 highest quality or the pinnacle of the game. I mean, to your point, this stuff doesn't happen overnight, and and maybe what you've sort of uh, outlined in, in your book and in this conversation is. We're still in the evolutionary stages in this country, but maybe closer to nirvana than we've ever been before. That's a lot of words to throw at you. But what do you think sort of the current state of the game is here and where it's going based on what you've seen in the
2: past that you've written about? The way when people people a lot of people ask me the same question, what do you think is going right? Do you think it's going well? And the way that the, the one thing I always say and the one way I always respond is this even though it's been going mainly soccer has been going for twenty years, it is still in a learning process. But in the past five years, they look like they finally figured out a way to go. Now per I have a lot of issues with how it's run and the way that the entire American soccer system is run at the moment. and I don't think I've got enough time to go into all of them. but well, you're
0: not the only one by the way, but that's for another conversation, right so
2: Yeah, I mean, we could sit here hours talking about the promotion and relegation. And on one hand, I've said it before to many people as well, it should come in. It would increase, personally, I think it would grow the league more than any individual player would. But I also understand that not every team is financially set up for what, you know, for relegation and promotion. Because there are some teams that just, if they would get promoted, they just wouldn't have the funds to compete with other teams. And that... Is uh, a problem that needs to be sorted out. Excuse me. In itself, Um, the the players. I like the fact that players are picking young South American players now because I have no problem in Newcastle United spending thirty million on one of the league's best players. I have no problem with. Players using MLS as a move to Europe because the way that I, I see it is if you can get a move to a European league, a respected European league for Major League Soccer, and be a success in them leagues, that inadvertently gives Major League Soccer a bit of, bit of credence that they can produce good players. For example, Christian Pulisic, if he is a success at Chelsea, I honestly I don't care if he's a success at Chelsea. Because I am not a Chelsea fan. But if he is a success in Chelsea, he will be a product of Germany. He will be a product of the Bundesliga, the same way that Weston McKinney will be a product of the Bundesliga. They are two examples of a separate issue. But Tyler Adams, he goes to Leipzig, if he's a success, that becomes a a, a, a badge for MLS to hang on to. If Miguel Almiron is a success, that is a badge for MLS to hang on to because it shows that only, you know, there is that perception of, oh, only the old players go there when they're on the way out. And you know what? That is true. There's no denying that. It is still a good payday for some players. But it is also a good place to develop and take the next step into a different league, into a different team. And I don't think fans can begrudge a player using an Atlanta or an LAFC as a way to you know, put themselves into a spotlight and move elsewhere. Jack Harrison, who is someone that I I'm am I'm a massive fan of, he came over to New York, He went over to New York when he was a youngster. He used NYCFC as a way to kind of, you know, show off what he can do. And now he's one of the best one of the best players in the Football League. And if Leeds do get promoted this season, which I hope they do, I suspect him to be a good player in the Premier League because he's got that talent and he's had enough game time at a fairly decent level. Now, if you want to talk about salary caps, designated players, there isn't enough time for that. I don't do business. I'm not a marketing seller. I don't know finance. If that is the only way that teams can stay healthy and not go at bust, then by all means, keep it that way. But I think what Major League Soccer needs to look at now is that they need to do what we've done. They need to go back through the entire history and just look at what made the peaks of American soccer work. So you look back at the ASL ASL era, excuse me, what worked there? Well there was a lot of ethnic ethics. There was a lot of immigration that worked. So you incorporate that. You don't stick to the prototypical typical American soccer player because you know if you put them in there because of their nationality, that's wrong. If you put them in there because they're a good player, that's different. But there are other players that can be used and that's what one pe- that's what one period of time showed. And then you look at another period of time, well, the NESL. What made that stand out? The biggest names in the in the sport, the best names in the sport, and characters. Rod for example, Rodney Marsh. He was a character, but he was also a very good player. And then you look at now, I'm not comparing the two, but Zlatan Ibrahimovic. He is people find him annoying, people love him. He's been one of my favourite players for years and years and years. So I will try to defend him whenever it, whenever he allows me to because sometimes he comes out with some absolute rubbish. But as a player, I still think he's fantastic. But in a way, he is so important to that league. He is so important to Major League Soccer because of the things that annoy people, because he has the similar characters to what some of the players in the NASL had. He has characteristics similar to what people were hooked on back in you know the 70s and the 60s when they saw these players. Not only were they outstanding talents, they were larger than life. It's like the Hulk Hogan effect. It's one thing to be a talented performer and a talented athlete, but if you have charisma, character, character, uh, you know, strong characteristics, and you have a look that is instantly recognisable, which is what I think people like Ibrahimovic had, have, uh, even to an extent, Beckham. He has something similar to that it works and it gives it a different dynamic so i just think what major league soccer needs to do he just needs to you know there i've heard there is a book coming out that they can use that go through the entire history of it that might be useful to them if they read that which i hope they do if they go through that and they just pick out what worked and what works at certain times and try to figure out how to make it similar to what it is you know make it work to other leagues then i think it becomes even bigger than it is the moment it stops comparing itself to the premier league the bundesliga la liga the nfl nba the moment it stops comparing itself to that the better because it needs to sort major league soccer needs to become major league soccer it doesn't need to become the premier league it doesn't need to become the nfl it needs to become its own brand and its own style and the only way that it can do that and the only way it can be legitimately seen as a good place for people to play soccer from the United States is to go back through history and to figure out what happened and what went wrong and right and right the wrongs of what happened before.
0: All right, there you have it. Uh, the book is called Stateside Soccer, uh, the definitive history of soccer in the United States. Uh, it is published by Pitch Publishing. If you live in the UK or somewhere else in Europe, uh, it is available now wherever good books are found. Uh, if you live in the United States, uh, you will be able to uh, purchase that book in October. I think October 1st is when it releases, uh, but you can pre-order it on places like Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com, et cetera, regardless of where you're listening to this little show. Uh, if you want to either pre-order the book or buy the book now, uh, and I wonder, I think if you're in the United States and want to purchase it on Amazon's UK website, you can do that too. Uh, but regardless, uh, just search up this episode on goodseatsstillavailable.com, our website, to search up this episode with Tom Scholes, and you will find a link to the book in whatever form it's available. And uh, when you buy it or pre order it from that link, uh, you'll be giving us a little love, and we appreciate you doing so. And certainly Tom will uh, appreciate it as well. And hopefully, we'll see him. Uh, and maybe you sometime in October when he's uh, back in the New York area, maybe at that Barnes and Noble on Fifth Avenue, New York City. Uh, hopefully uh, not only uh, on the shelf there in the sports section, but maybe giving out some autographs of that book as well. Again, it's called Stateside Stocker, and uh, it is available now or soon, depending on where you're living. And uh, of course, you can follow uh, Tom on Twitter at underscore Tom Scholes. That's underscore Tom, T-O-M. Uh, Scholes s c h o l e s at underscore Tom Scholes, uh, and you can follow us on Twitter, of course, at Good Seats Still. Uh, you can follow us on tw- uh, Twitter. On tw- uh, you already said Twitter, didn't I? You can follow us twice on Twitter. Why don't you? But follow us on Instagram if you'd like to add to your social media follows. Uh, on Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still available. And you want to follow us on Facebook? You could do that too. There's a page devoted to devoted uh, uh, to, to us there too. He says uh, as he stumbles his way through, follow us there by all means. And of course, you can always find out what's going on with this show uh, on our website. It's the uh, locus for everything about it at goodseatsstillavailable.com. You'll find our email address there. Uh, you'll find a link to our uh, weekly newsletter. Uh, you'll find out all what's going on with the show. You'll find all of our old episodes, all the stuff there again at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And one last place to check out is Podfly Productions. They're at podfly.net. And uh, we'd like to thank them each and every week for helping us produce the show and uh, Jerry Payne in particular, who helps us uh, do so uh, each and every week. Again, Podfly Productions, you can find out more about them at podfly.net. All right. Again, my thanks to Tom, my thanks to you. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week with another fun filled episode. Until then, the ticket window is now closed. And I wish you a wonderful week ahead. Take care, everybody.